Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and we're moving along in Exodus, and we did Exodus uh, 22, I think it was, uh, last weekend in the afternoon show, and so I've already got those recordings up at our site at Preparing You, so you can, you can, you can go there and hear the recordings, uh, if, you want to get brought up to date, but today we're going to be going into Exodus 23, and of course I've been following along as we go through these studies with Jordan Peterson's uh, review of Exodus with uh, the scholars that he brought to a table to uh, discuss these. Uh, they're changing some of the people from time to time and adding different people, and everybody gets to add their comments as they read through Exodus. And... Uh, of course, I've been taking copious notes as to some of their comments because some of their comments are way off. Some of them are pretty good, but there's such a variety of views concerning what the Bible says, uh, much less Exodus. Exodus was written a long time ago as part of the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of the Torah. And... Uh, and there are so many words that are in the text and uh, surrounding the text and surrounding the theologies that have been created by looking at the Bible because it's one of the most read books in the world. Anybody who is trying to dispel the false information that is floating around, which is one of the first topics in Exodus 23, the Chapters and verses, as they're numbered in our biblical text, are not a part of the original text. Uh, there is obvious some ways in which you can divide different chapters up. Uh, you can certainly divide up paragraphs, but all that is determined by people who've gone in after the fact and are trying to translate this ancient language into whatever language you're reading the Bible in, English or Spanish or French or whatever. And because of the King James Bible influence, the English influence, a great many of those paragraphs and, and verse changes and chapter changes were determined by earlier writers uh, or translators of the Bible who were translating it into English. And, uh, of course, then we have, because we're in the Old Testament, we're usually looking at some form of what we call the Masoretic Text. And the Masoretic Text was taken from lots of different texts uh, and translated over a period of hundreds of years and uh, eventually came up around 1100 or so with what they call the Masoretic Text. And that is the Hebrew text of our English Speaking Bible is translated from that Hebrew text. There are lots of, lots of essays and articles and studies made. They're bringing into question certain things that we find in the Masoretic text. Many of the Masoretic text sources are not available anymore. 
And so, and then we have a language that has been looked at by millions of interpreters over a period of thousands of years. So, and then when you come to the Bible, nobody just comes to the Bible cold, not having read anything about the Bible. They all come with preconceived notions. Even if you're an atheist, you have a preconceived notion about the Bible. And a video that we put up on our His Holy Church uh, YouTube page was an interview by an atheist who was, of course, bringing up a lot of these different verses that he has no understanding of whatsoever, uh, even though, you know, he grew up in a supposedly, I hold up my fingers and say, Christian family. He has denounced all that and become an atheist. But many of the things that we mentioned on that video, he said he had never heard before. Uh, all the time that he was in the churches that he was going to, or the church that he was going to, all the time that he has spent interviewing people from different religious groups about the Bible, he had never heard many of the things that we brought up. And of course, that is one of the tasks as we bring these things up, and people have never heard of them, we have to have lots and lots of footnotes so that people can go and say, well, I never heard that before. Because you've never heard it before doesn't mean it's not true. And because it's different than what you were taught certainly doesn't mean that it's not true. We know there are 40,000 different denominations and they all have a different opinion at least about part of the Bible. And you may have opinions about the Bible and what it says, what Jesus said, what Moses said. But your opinions don't make it so. Your opinions are what you have concluded. And you may believe your opinions. You may believe in your opinions. You may believe in the opinions of those that, those people that you uh, learned from, studied under. But what is, is. It isn't what your opinion is. Your opinion might be close. It might be way far away from the truth. And uh, Exodus 22 starts off with, Thou shalt not raise a false report. And of course that word raise, uh, it really just means to make a false report. It, you're not to say something that is not true. And uh, Or in the same verse, it says, put not thine hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. So, if someone has deceived you and you're telling people what they told you and you believe it to be true, then you may or may not be giving a righteous or unrighteous witness because you were deceived by somebody. Maybe the person that deceived you was deceived by somebody else. Like I said, we've had thousands and thousands of years to deceive the whole world. And of course, that's actually in the prophecy of the Bible. That the whole world would be deceived except for the grace of God. Even the elect would have been deceived, except for the grace of God. 
Now, you can receive the grace of God and still be deceived. You can still have ideas about God, about Jesus, about Moses, about about the early church that are completely incorrect. And yet, you could still be blessed by God. But when confronted with the whole truth about God, about Jesus, about the gospel, about the Old Testament, about Exodus, you have to be willing to repent, which means change your mind. Think differently. That's what repentance is. It's thinking differently. And a lot of the things that we're going to be sharing today and a lot of things that we've shared already in our uh, more than 20 different episodes on Exodus, that many of them we already have up on our pages at Preparing You. And we're going to try to put these so that they're more available on other websites as well. And, of course, you can do that. You can share these these broadcasts with other people and ask them what they think. And, of course, they'll probably disagree with at least something that we're saying, But uh, which is why you can direct them to preparing you and to all the other things that we've written and shared and the hundreds, even thousands of audios that uh, that we have up that and articles that we have up to try to tell you what everybody else is not telling you. And there was an interesting event in episode 10 of Jordan Peterson where they came and they asked a particular question about a particular verse and nobody knew what it meant. And Jordan Peterson said, well, there's at least one person out there that we should have at this table (laughs) that knows what it means. And uh, they're probably already done with filming all of them, I I assume, because they they filmed the first uh, 20 or so episodes, or well, I guess it would be the first 10 episodes, the first 20 chapters. And and then they came back to film the, the second half. And I, I assume they've already got, I haven't got to the end of what they've got available, but, uh, it, the reality is, is I knew exactly what that verse meant. <laughs> and, uh, I could, I could tell them really quick. And we'll be coming up to that verse, uh, or maybe we've already done it. I'd have to go take a look to see which, which verse that was. But I know the verse, but I don't always know it by the, the numbers, but it, it was when they said that they were not to go up by steps when they were creating this altar that, uh, that, uh, yeah, we covered that in Exodus 20, Exodus 20, 26. So they, they said, neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. And we did get some comments from uh, Dennis Prager as to what the word nakedness means. And he's wrong. Sort of. I mean, he's sort of right. He referred to it as the, the sexualization of religion. But, and of course, sexualization of things is often about dominance, about authority. Uh, you know, uh, a great deal of the... Uh, uh, 
gay world, or what they call gay or homosexual world, is really about dominance. Who is going to be dominant? A great deal of the heterosexual world is often involved with dominance. Uh, who is dominating? The woman is dominated. The the abused wife is dominated, or girlfriend, is dominated by a guy who is actually insecure about his own masculinity. And so he bolsters that security by dominating some poor young girl. And uh, it's about vanity. Uh, that's what dominance is about, is that you... That's what narcissism is about. That's what uh, sadism is about. It's about dominance. Uh, so you could say in a roundabout sort of way that the reference to nakedness there has something to do with dominance, uh, which could have something to do with immoral sexuality which has to do with dominance, because sexuality has to do with reproduction. And how that is used by people may have to do only with dominance rather than reproduction or self-gratification, which again is back to dominance. You want to feel good, you don't really care if anybody else feels good. Which is back to that narcissism, which is the psychopathy that all the rules of the Bible that God is explaining to us through Moses is to help keep our society from becoming narcissist, narcissistic or psychopathic. And But unfortunately, a great many of the people of the world do not understand what Moses is trying to say. And some of that is by design, some of it is just by ignorance, some of it is because of vanity that we're not willing to see that we're looking at things incorrectly. And so, be ready to face all of those things. But this is an individual journey. Uh, real briefly, you can go back to our recordings on uh, Exodus 20, and the show on Exodus 20, and I'll probably eventually devote a whole... I have devoted a whole page to naked. Uh, and what nakedness means in the biblical text, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, who discovered that they were naked when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, when they tried to decide for themselves what was good and evil by eating of this symbolic tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This metaphoric tree, there may have been a real tree somewhere, but it's a metaphor. There's a tree that's a metaphor for the knowledge of good and evil and the pursuit of the knowledge of good and evil. And there is another tree, also a metaphor of the tree of life. The tree of life will actually reveal to you what is good and evil. The tree of knowledge is you figuring it out for yourself. And if you try to figure it out for yourself, you're going to find out you don't really have the authority to do that and you are actually naked because that's what naked means. It means lacking authority. And to go up by steps is about a hierarchy of power of one over the other. I'm higher on the stairs, higher up on the steps than you. I'm in authority over you. And 
if I create a system of hierarchy of authority, I will reveal my nakedness because I don't really have authority. Because when God created man, he gave man dominion over a lot of things, but he did not give man dominion over men, other men. Nor did he really give them dominion over women. And actually, a woman, in some ways, I'm not going to second guess God, was created usually with this supposedly weaker stature, uh, less bone density, less, uh, you know, muscle, uh, uh, power, and, uh, therefore is supposedly the weaker sex. Yet, she is the one who often bears the burden of creating the next generation. She bears the front of that. So in other ways, a woman is much stronger than a, than a man. And they are different because the difference tests one another. The, the man in his power is tested so that he doesn't become narcissistic or, or uh, sadistic or, or brutal or overbearing with a woman which he could probably physically do, but emotionally and spiritually he is actually supposed to cherish her and take care of her and protect her, use his power to protect her rather than uh, oppress her. And which is why I say that if you want a nation to oppress a nation, first you oppress the woman and you do that by getting men to oppress the women in their nation, and then they will become easier to oppress also. They will become easier to influence with that tree of knowledge. So, the whole statement in Exodus twenty twenty six that none of them could seem to come up with was, uh, the, the meaning of they could not come up with was that you are not to create this hierarchy to go up to his altars by steps of authority, of one exercising authority over the other, because you don't really have that authority. You're naked when it comes to that authority. That's what it means. And that is actually fits right in to what the altars are, which is another thing they don't really seem to understand what the altars are, what their function is in society. And this, a lot of things they have covered in Exodus, they were right on. And the the balance of the different people in their symposium there brought in information from different places that helped clarify a lot of things that many people do not understand about Exodus. But they have an absolute blind spot to the steps and to the nakedness because they don't understand the altars. When they discuss the tenth statement, the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods, they, they just navigated around the most covetous practices of modern society. They they did understand that coveting, you know, isn't that you want to have a wife like your neighbor, that you want to have a house like your neighbor, 
that you want to have a job or a car or a pickup like your neighbor. Coveting was wanting your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's car, your neighbor's income. When you want to have what your neighbor earned and produced, you want to have it for yourself. That is coveting. One individual on the group brought up the idea that coveting is always an internal event. It's it's what it's just your desire for something. But it's not. Coveting coveting is if you covet your neighbor's goods you might steal it. But stealing is covered in another one of those ten statements. If you want to take something from your neighbor, you might end up killing your neighbor. That's in another one of those deals. But coveting is desiring something that rightfully belongs to your neighbor. That the act that the idea that there is a commandment about not stealing means very clearly that God has a sense of property rights. If there are no property rights, you don't have a right to anything, then there's nothing, there's no such thing as stealing. Because you didn't have a right to it, so I could just come and pick it up and take it and use it for myself. But there is, in God's scheme of things, a right to something. And it really, basically, you have a right to your labor. You, you have a right because that is a product of your life. And God gave you your life. So therefore, you have a right to your labor because it was bestowed upon you, endowed upon you by God. So if you don't have a right to all of your labor, if somebody else has a right to take some of your labor away, something has happened where you're no longer in a state of nature as a free soul under God. Some part of your labor now belongs to somebody else. They they seem to navigate right over that. The bondage of Egypt, which is Exodus is all about, bring, setting the captive free and then creating a system where he will not go back into the bondage of Egypt where a portion of his labor belonged to the government. You don't want to go back to that place where the government now owns a part of your labor because that's the bondage of Egypt. There's more to it and we've covered that. But basically, they don't seem to grasp that. And they don't grasp that because... So, following back their thinking, where did they steer off the path? And, of course, that idea of coveting your neighbor's goods, they certainly don't have that down very good. They don't understand that desiring to take away from your neighbor or to create a system... And swear allegiance to that system and the rulers of that system. And you know that the rulers of that system do go up by steps, do exercise authority one over the other, and will decide to take away from your neighbor so that they can give you something for free. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys to the Kingdom. So, anyway, the steps 
is a hierarchy of authority. Now, we know that there's a hierarchy in God's kingdom because Jesus talks about a hierarchy. But the hierarchy in God's kingdom is one of service. The one who is greater in the kingdom is the one who actually takes the lower position. He was first is last, and he was last is first, etc. And and Jesus took the lowest position in the household, which is the one who washes the feet. And he washed the feet of his apostles to show that this is the how you get in the hierarchy of God. It's not in... See, we can't even say the word hierarchy without people thinking someone higher, H-I-G-H-E-R, over me. Or someone in authority over me. But it's absolutely the reverse in the kingdom of God than it is in the kingdoms of the world. So the hierarchy in the kingdom of God is one of service. If you are a servant to your neighbor... You certainly are not coveting his goods, nor are you asking other men who exercise authority one over the other to take away from your neighbor so that you can have stuff for free. If you create a system whereby the rulers of your nation can take away from the members of your nation to provide for you what you want, at the expense of your neighbor, that's a covetous practice. That doesn't take a really high IQ to figure out. That doesn't take a uh, four-year or six-year or seven-year degree or a master's degree uh, in anything. That if you're desiring what is your neighbor's, that is coveting. If you're desiring a portion of his labor to be set aside for your benefit, that is coveting. Obviously, it is coveting to say tax the rich or to tax corporations or tax, you know, anybody to get stuff for free. That, by its nature, is coveting somebody else's labor, somebody else's stuff, somebody else's sweat and toil. To benefit you. It's not stealing. People always say taxation is stealing. Taxation is not stealing. Taxation is often, not always, often coveting. If I built a bridge and I said, oh, you can use the bridge, but you got to pay a toll to get across the bridge, which is basically an excise tax. I'm taxing you on the use of the bridge. I can do that because I built the bridge. And I have to pay back all the stuff that I put into the bridge because part of my sweat and blood is in that bridge. And you want to use it. You want to use part of my sweat and blood. And I can say, well, you know, it's going to cost you 10 cents to cross the bridge. If you come across with an 18-wheeler, I might charge you a quarter. Maybe I'll charge you a a dollar. (laughs) Who knows? You know what? It's my bridge. I get to set the fee. You don't want to use it? Go around. That's a form of taxation. That's not coveting your neighbor's goods. To want to use the bridge without helping to reimburse me for the cost of building it for your convenience, that would be coveting my labor. So all taxation is not coveting. All taxation is 
and no taxation unless it's done illegally uh, is is theft. But I'm not supposed to covet my neighbor's goods. So, of course, I will pay the toll to go across somebody else's bridge. But if you set up a system based on covetousness, then you're you're creating a system that is in violation of the Ten Statements, the Ten Commandments. If you're basing that system on the idea that men who exercise authority will take away from my neighbor, you're engaged in a wicked system. A system of wickedness. And that's that's what we see there when they're they're talking in this uh, uh, 23, Exodus 23, Thou shalt not raise a false report, you know, misinformation, or put thine hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Well, the fact is, a great many people are unrighteous witnesses because they're not telling you the truth about Exodus. They're talking about Exodus. They're talking about Exodus 20 and 23 and all these different verses that Moses wrote down years and years ago. But they're not telling you the whole truth. They're misleading you. And so, I have a whole page on what's wicked. The people were said to be wicked in the days of Noah because it was filled with violence which would end in its destruction. Nineveh, uh, wickedness came up to God where it would be said to be overthrown. The word of wickedness often means moral and social sins. Moral and social sins. A moral sin would be coveting your neighbor's goods. To do create a society in which that was okay to desire things for free at the expense of your neighbor through the power of men who exercise authority, the, the dominance of men who exercise authority one over the other. That that would be wicked. And uh, and it also would include violence in the sense that it includes force. And that that the men who exercise authority are going to force the contributions of the people. Some will, will say, some Jewish scholars say that, that that wickedness is more the moral and social sins rather than idolatry. But idolatry, according to Colossians, is covetousness. That's what it is. Colossians 3.5 Mortify therefore your members talking to Christians which are upon the earth fornication. Fornication. What is fornication? Well, I have an article on fornication. That was another place in Jordan Peterson's group where they were talking about adultery. And this is very common. I understand their misunderstanding adultery. Everybody 
has come down to us through the ages, through the Masoretic interpretation of the text, that adultery only has to do with sexual adultery. Yet, if you look in the Bible, all the places that the word adultery is used, most of the time they're not talking about sexual adultery. They're talking about national adultery. And that national national adultery is connected with the God's many that people make covenants with. See, marriage is a covenant. Family is the building block of the kingdom of God. It is the institution of God. But if you're making covenants with other gods, that would be considered a form of adultery. Because you're adulterating your relationship with the God by making agreements with other gods, which is like adultery. You've made an agreement that this is your wife, and yet you're treating this woman as if she was your wife. And we call that interaction adultery. You're adulterating the relationship with your wife by having relationships with another woman who is not your wife. Well, national adultery is the same thing. That you're going over and, you know, making agreements with the inhabitants where you go, which they also cover under thou shalt not do that. And people say, well, that's covered over under that commandment. But the reality is all these commandments can be summed up into two commandments, according to Jesus Christ. That you love God, which is the giver of life, therefore you want to give life. You want to be like God, because you want to be like that which you love. You want to become like a God in the sense that you want to give life to others. And then the other commandment is that you were to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if you loved your neighbor as yourself, you wouldn't send men to your neighbor's house to make him give up some of his sweat and toil, some of his life, for your benefit. You you wouldn't do it because that would be coveting your neighbor's goods. And so that loving your neighbor as yourself includes all those five commandments of thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Well, back to false witness, we're still in verse 1 of 23. False witness is to tell them stuff about the Bible that just ain't true. That nakedness isn't about sexualizing government or uh, sexualizing religion. It's nakedness is about not having the authority to go up by steps. Now, you can get the authority by going up by steps if you go back and make covenants with men that give them the authority to go up by steps. They can now make laws for you. They can decide what is good and evil for you. Is there anybody in your life, in your country, whatever country you're in, if you're in Australia or the United States or Canada, is there anybody in your country that has the right to decide What is good and evil for you? Well, yeah, they're the judges of your nation. Your supreme courts, your superior courts. They decide that's okay, that's good. And that over there, that's not okay, that's evil. They have the power to do that because you gave them the power to do that because you became a member of their system And you you 
through your votive offerings, you you say, yeah, they can make those decisions for me. And so if you start correlating, you know, what Moses is doing, he's creating a government. He's creating a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. He's not only returning liberty to the people, he's returning responsibility to the people. So we all have a responsibility not to raise a false report. So if I say something that you have never heard before, if I say something you were not told before, if I say something that you didn't realize was in the Bible before, I need to write down and show you where I'm getting this so that you can determine whether or not my report is a false report. But you may have to do some repenting if it's not a false report. If what I'm telling you is true, you may have to think differently from now on. Now, one of the things that they also bring up in their episode 10, at least, is that they think that Moses is setting up a democracy, or at least it sounds like they're saying that. He's democratizing, is the word that they're using, the Israelites. because it's And they also think when they talk about setting up rulers over the people, and of course we've already gone over this, there are many words that can be translated into ruler, And there are rulers who exercise authority. And then there are rulers who are just leaders. Guys who kind of go out ahead. Uh, Guys who uh, become kind of, you know, like you're going to have a football team. And you pick two captains. And those captains start picking their team. And they, they get ten guys on each team. And then they go out and play the game. There's already rules on the field. They may, the captain may make certain decisions like we're going to do this play or we're going to do that play. But once the play's in motion, everybody's got to make decisions on their own based on the movement of everybody else. So there are certain leaders that they pick. They have certain laws that they have laid out. We looked at that. But they weren't really laws. They were judgments. We talked about that precedent. You have, may have to go back and listen to the audios on 22 and 21. And if you haven't already heard them, to understand that all these statutes and ordinances that they would like us to believe are laws are actually precedents by which we, as responsible agents of the kingdom of God, can make decisions deciding fact and law, how these things apply. Because there are so many variables in every circumstance, you can't just say, you know, you go here, you do this, you do that, because there's motion on the field all the time. So anyway, let's get through this uh, pretty quick here. And uh, then we'll look at some of these things like what is wickedness and what is evil. But... I'm going to tell you stuff. It's not a false report. If you think it is, get a hold of us and we'll, we'll address it. And these pages of information will, will, will fill in the gaps because we have hundreds and hundreds of articles that will explain these little minute details 
so that if you have a question, we we may have already addressed this in another location. Verse 2, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. So, Moses is right away talking against democracy. Democracy is where 51% of the people decide where the other 49 are going to go. And he, and he says, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. So, he is not democratizing the Israelites. Of course, now, part of this, people think the United States is a democracy. And of course, from one point of view, the United States federal government is a democracy. It's a federal democracy within a republic. It even states that in the American Creed that the United States is a democracy within a republic. Originally, we didn't have the democracy in the republic. We only had the republic. And the people were not a party to the democracy. If I had those guys in front of me, I could argue this very, very clearly to them. Because I know some of them know, have the pieces of the puzzle. They've actually read, some of them, they're not all even Americans, have read the Constitution, are familiar with some of these things and the history of it. But they haven't quite put all the pieces together. And the reason why is that they have a blind eye to, at least so far as I've been trying to figure out, why can't they see this? They have have turned a blind eye to the covetous practices of today's modern welfare systems. To some degree, they don't want to be socialists, because they know socialism, that's going too far. But they don't, you don't even want to be covetous at all. You don't want to desire any benefit at the expense of your neighbor. And you certainly don't want a democracy where you have to obey 51% of the people who want to go and do evil, which is covetousness. Neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many. To rest judgment. And that word rest judgment. Uh, it's uh, stretch out judgment. That It's actually a word that means stretch out or extend. Or spread judgment. Which would be to spread jurisdiction. You, you know, to expand jurisdiction. Uh, and a multitude could do that. If you all got in a group, like you, the Bible talks about this in the clauses in Proverbs or verses in Proverbs about one purse. We have an article on one purse. If you all decide to have one purse, you're now going to expand the jurisdiction of the multitude because it's going to have power over your purse because you all have one purse. If you don't all have one purse, the multitude may not have power over your purse. But of course, we will see coming up in Exodus where they build the golden calf, which is to have one purse. That I'm going to break off all my gold and I'm going to put it into this golden statue. Those golden statues had a function in society. 
I haven't heard what these guys are going to say about it. I've heard them make reference to it. They don't seem to understand what the golden statue was. They don't understand that it was a one purse. They don't understand that it was a reserve fund. In all the Greek city-states, it was a reserve fund. It was a central bank. And somebody was going to have authority over that gold. And so their authority was now centralized in the uh, over the gold in the hands of a few men. Moses said, no, all the gold needs to be in your individual purses. This is one of the things that we talked about several shows back where Dennis Prager says, yes, in the macro, but not in the micro. This is going to keep repeating itself. What do you mean micro, macro? Macro is that democracy. It's where some of your rights, in order for the democracy to have rights, you must have a common purse of rights in that democracy and you give that democracy some power over what used to be your choice. It may start very small and it may expand until it rests judgment. Now the word judgment that we see there in the text doesn't actually exist in the Hebrew text. It's put in italics. That was something these guys didn't know way back at the beginning when I first started listening to them. They couldn't understand why in the King James some words were in italics. It's because they're not in the original text. And somebody put it in, a translator put it in to make the sentence flow. That was his judgment to do. Moses didn't put it in. That guy put it in. And that nobody on their whole panel knew that. Which is, you know, to me is basic fundamental. I mean, way back, I don't know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, when I was first reading the Bible, I said, why are the words, some words in italics? I looked it up. And I didn't even have Google back then. (laughs) You, You could look it up. You could ask Google. Google will even tell you. But they didn't know. Because they lack knowledge. Yay, But for that lack of knowledge, they might be getting this right. I don't know. Nobody is on the panel that is explaining some of these things to them. No, Moses is not democratizing Israel. He was creating a republic, which is not the same as a democracy. And we've written articles on that. And you can go and read the articles on that. I should put the links over there to some of these articles so that you can realize that no, 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 he's not democratizing because Moses said, don't do that. Don't democratize it. Don't follow a multitude, especially to do evil. And and what evil is he talking about? You know, it's, it's a word that is translated 442 times evil. But it's also translated wickedness, wicked, mischief, hurt, bad, trouble, sore, affliction, adversity, ill, it's translated lots of different ways. And it'll go back to the article that I've already written on wicked. What is wicked? And this has been the problem. Sodom and Gomorrah had wickedness in them. What was the wicked? And they were sinners. They were wicked and sinners, it says. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? That in a time of affluence, they did not strengthen the poor. That was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, that that expanded out into a lot of different forms of wickedness. 
but they literally weakened the poor rather than strengthened them. How did they do that? Because they had a system of legal charity. Because when the state creates a system of legal charity, they set a table of the dainties of rulers. Because what's on that table of welfare is there because men go up by steps and exercise authority one over the other. And when they exercise authority one over the other, they can set a huge table of all kinds of dainties. I have an article on dainties. The dainties of rulers. If you have an appetite for the dainties of rulers, put a knife to your throat. That's what the Bible tells you. Because you have this appetite for the dainties of rulers. You don't want an appetite for the dainties of rulers. But yet, you could still get hungry. And you need to eat something. Sometimes bad things happen. So Moses is setting up a system to take care of the needy of society without weakening them. And he's going to need two kinds of love. And we'll get into this eventually. You're going to need the milk of human kindness. But you're going to need the meat of righteousness. When we come back, we'll talk more about this. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, we're in uh, Exodus 23, and we're looking at just the first few verses, but... uh, uh, so much did the Jordan Peterson's group get wrong when they're thinking that somehow or other he's democratizing that the rulers that are mentioned in the text, if you go back to the Hebrew, you'll see that these are actually leaders. They're not rulers. They don't exercise authority one over the other. They don't go up by steps. Uh, they aren't a hierarchy of authority and power over the people. And there will be, we'll see lots and lots of verses that keep cooperating that to be the truth. and uh, But he is explaining judgments to the people so that they can become the courts that decide fact and law, something we used to do in America when America was supposedly great, but all the people who want to make America great again have no understanding uh, and in many cases no capacity to decide fact and law. And it is because they have gone away from the ways of righteousness for so long, they have to turn around and go back and learn the way, the way of righteousness, which of course is what Christ was saying to begin with. So Moses was not establishing a democracy. He was actually establishing what you might call a pure republic, uh, what the ancient Tacitus used to call libera res publica, Free from things public. The people were free from things public. There was no central treasury. Jesus speaks against the idea of a central treasury. There was no golden calf. There was no Fort Knox. That the gold was in the pockets of the people. The value of their labor was represented by gold or silver or by commodity money. And it was in their pockets. Uh, It wasn't in the pockets of the government. I just heard this morning somebody talking about how solvent social security system is and that it is no threat 
to the economy of the United States or, or the the expenditures. You know, it's not putting a burden on the expenditures of government that it is actually solvent. Social Security, they haven't read the actual law. They haven't read the court cases. They have some knowledge, but they lack other knowledge. Social Security has never, ever, ever been solvent. Because the lady was holding up a paper right there showing how much is in Social Security and how much is in government. But the Supreme Court has ruled the guys who decide what is good and evil have ruled over and over again there is no division of funds. There is on her sheet of paper, but in the law there is no division of funds. And the United States has never been solvent, has never had enough money in the bank to cover its debt since the creation of Social Security. In fact, the reason they created Social Security is they wanted to put one more item in the treasury, and that is your labor. They wanted to put your labor in the treasury. FDR brought you back into the bondage of Egypt where a portion of your labor no longer belongs to you, but it belongs to somebody else. And through numerous other processes which we cover in the book Covenants of the Gods that we, is free online. You can, the PDF is there. You can go read it for free online. But through at least a dozen different processes, you've been waiving your rights, and sometimes through ignorance, but sometimes through wantonness, and literally concupiscence, which is a word that we find in the New Testament. But let's go through these verses again real quickly. We're not to give a false report. We're not to tell you lies about the Bible, about Exodus, about Jesus Christ. Even if we were told these lies and we believed them uh, to be true, once we find out they're not true, we can't tell them anymore. Because, And we certainly can't do them in order to put our hands with the wicked and covet our neighbor's goods. Because then we will be an unrighteous witness. Which is why Paul says that there were a lot of things he could do, but he's not going to do because he didn't want to be an unrighteous witness. So anyway, verse 2, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. So democracy is out. Neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to rest judgment to give them more and more, expand their power to make more and more judgments over. And those 15 chapters of the book Covenants of the Gods show how you have just been doing that for decades upon decades. Number three, neither shalt thou countenance a poor man in his cause. So, and this actually... It, it takes a little bit of thinking to understand this. But to countenance a poor man in his cause, to honor a poor man in his cause, is where the milk and meat come in. When he's talking about meat and milk, <laughs> uh, this is, you do not, you do not want to weaken the poor. If you honor a poor man in his cause, because he's a poor man, you're going to weaken him. Everybody, poor men 
rich men have to take back their responsibilities together. Okay, number four. If thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. This is a part of what Jesus was saying, because Jesus and Moses were in agreement. Love thy neighbor. That you don't have a right to even take from your enemy. Tax the rich. Tax the rich, because they think, you know, the, the left thinks the rich are their enemy. Even though the rich create more jobs often than the poor. <laughs> Certainly. So, uh, yeah, you, you cannot want to take away from even your enemy. You don't want to profit even from your enemy. Number five, if thou see the ass of him that hateth thee, lying under his burden, otherwise he's clapped under his burden, and wouldest forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. So, you gotta help him out. You, you, the people who hate you, you still, you have to forgive them. Why? Because as you forgive, so shall you be forgiven. And so Moses is setting, laying out the precedent for the way you need to be. And of course this took lots and lots of explanation, but in order for us to get to the point where we don't understand these things anymore, it took lots and lots of false witness to get us to the point where we don't understand these basics of the kingdom of God, which haven't changed. This was another thing. Um, Hadley was saying, uh, was it Hadley? I can't remember which guy it was now. Uh, was saying that uh, that the laws that Moses is laying down don't apply to us. Well, for one thing, their judgments, the principles of them do apply to us because they are universal. And if you if you don't apply them, if they are not applied in you by God, in your heart and in your mind, you're probably the wicked. You, you know what will happen? You'll end up coveting your neighbor's goods. You'll end up bound in a democracy on the highway to hell. And you will become a surety for debt. You will become merchandise. Because they talk about surety for debt. That's what merchandise is. You become a human resource. All this, everything that they're talking about that we're not supposed to be doing, they're doing today. They've returned to the bondage of Egypt. They become merchandise. They become a surety for debt. They they have depended upon a multitude to do evil. Well, everybody else is doing it. That's the way we do it, right? That's what everybody tells you. No. And rest judgment. The judgment's not in your hands. You don't decide fact and law. Somebody else decides what is good and evil. But this is what will always come when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil instead of the tree of life. If you eat of, really eat of the tree of life, you wouldn't have such a blind spot to the covetous practices of the world. You have a blind spot to that. And I would like to help you let it go and see the truth. And to see the witness. But a lot of people are not going to like what I have to say. Now, here in um, verse 6 we see, Thou shalt not rest the judgment of thy poor in his cause. So, we 
we see that mentioned up there in 3 and now in 6, we see thou shalt not rest the judgment of the poor in his cause. And that word again is that word stretch out. Rest is actually has to do with stretching out the judgment of thy poor in his cause. And and the word there for judgment is this minshit piet uh, tet, which is mishpat. Uh, that is translated judgment 296 times. Uh, occasionally somebody will decide they want to translate it at ordinance. Even less times they want to translate it into lawful. But it actually is the precedent where Moses is laying down how the kingdom of God works. And it works the same today as it did back then. Jesus didn't change the way it works. He fulfilled it because he explained all those uh, points of misinformation that had come down through the Pharisees and other Sadducees and other uh, people that said, no, no, it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods as long as you do it through government. Then it's okay. And you can, yeah, you can sign up for our welfare system at the temple with Herod and get the baptism of Herod. And then we, then you have to pay in. It will be required that you pay your fair share. And then the ministers of the temple through the synagogues of the people, which were the tens, hundreds, and thousands of the people, would redistribute what they collect so that everybody would be taken care of in a social welfare system they called the Corbin of the Pharisees. But that was making the word of God to none effect because it wasn't done by charity. It wasn't done by daily choice. It was done by compelled offerings. John the Baptist went out to the desert and said, No, no. How does it work, John? They say to him, because he's got this other baptism. He's not at the laver giving the baptism of Herod. He's giving the baptism of John the Baptist. And he's, John the Baptist simply not, you don't do it by force. Until John the Baptist, everybody was trying to do it by force. That's what it says. But John said, you got two coats and your neighbor doesn't have one share. Do the same in meats. You got extra food and your neighbor doesn't have any share. You still got to do it in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Because you're still going to have synagogues. They already had that for centuries. But now you're going to do it the way it was meant to do, which we will see as we get through Exodus, because God will say it has to be free will offering. It has to be freely given. By individual choice. If you don't do that, even Polybius, the pagan from Corinth, said if you have an appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them through the rule of force, at the expense of your neighbor, you're going to degenerate into perfect savages. You know what will happen? You'll be burning down your own neighborhoods, looting the stores of your neighbors, and you don't even care. You'll laugh as you go running out and the store is on fire. That's it, because you'll be a perfect savage. You won't care. You say, I want my, I want what I want, and I want it now, because you're a narcissist. 
You, you don't have any immunity to narcissism. Boy, that's hard to say. Anyway, number seven, keep thee far from false matter. A false matter. And the innocent and righteous slay thou not, for I will not justify the wicked. So now this statement in seven, Exodus 23, seven, the innocent and righteous slay thou not. For I will not justify the wicked. So you create these blanket systems where you give power to men to go up by steps who have authority one over the other. They're gonna, you know, they're gonna confiscate a widow's home because she owes six dollars on her property tax. Happen. Real deal. Six dollars. She owed six dollars. They confiscated her whole house, sold it to somebody else, and she couldn't get her house back. Took tens of thousands of dollars in some people that came to her aid to finally get her house back. Because she owed six dollars. Wow. <laughs> A widow. Happens every day. Not always six dollars, but widows and orphans are being robbed every day because of the system you've created. But you... You don't have the right to make these decisions. You could. If you turn around and start doing what Christ actually said, within a few months, a few years, depending on how many people turn around, you can start resting judgment back. It could be done. But you have to repent. You have to actually do what Christ said. You have to come together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and actually start caring about one another as much as you care about yourself because you've been caring about yourself for a long time now. Your benefits. What are my benefits? What am I going to get out of People are still going to church, picking a church because, well, I wasn't getting anything out of it. But that's not why you pick Christ for what you're going to get out of them. Those people will fall away when the going gets rough. Number eight, and thou shalt take no gift, for the gift blindeth the wise and perverteth the words of the righteous. No gift. Well, the word there that they have for gift is also means bribe. No bribe. You say, oh, well, they're talking about government employees taking bribes to subvert justice. Well, no, they're talking about you and your covetous practices. You want to think your system is good, your democracy is good, because you get all these benefits. And I, I have people say, I don't take any benefits from the government. I, almost everybody who tells me that, I can find where they're taking benefits from the government. At the expense of their neighbor. But seeking the kingdom of God is not about being foolish virgins. Not being a part. I'm not a part of their system. Well, okay, so you're a virgin. You, you you don't have a covenant with them. But you're a foolish virgin if you're not coming together with others. If you're just burning your oil for yourself, you're going to be locked out. That's what the foolish virgin's whole story is about. The people said, well, I'm not a part of their system. I'm idiotis, is the Greek word. I'm idiotis. I'm a virgin. I, I'm not a member of their parthenos. Their system of social welfare that is based on covetous practices, which, according to Colossians, is idolatry. I'm not a part of that system. Okay, you're a virgin. But are you a part of God's system? 
If you're not part of God's system, then you're just a foolish virgin. And when the doors are shut, the doors are shut. Number nine, also, thou shalt not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, seeing ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. All kinds of burdens were put on the Israelites when they are in Egypt that were not put upon every other Egyptian. They did have the the one-fifth income tax through everybody owed that one-fifth income tax in Egypt. That was part of the bondage of Egypt. But there were other burdens through crafts of state. They put other burdens on the Israelites that made that burden even greater and greater. But their intent was to make the Israelites weaker and weaker because they feared the Israelites. But because they put that burden on them, they became stronger and stronger. So number 10, supposedly starts the law about the Sabbath and festivals. And number 10 says, And six years thou shalt sow thy land and shalt gather in the fruits thereof. But the seventh year thou shalt let it rest and lie still that the poor of thy people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field shall eat. In like manner thou shalt deal with thy vineyard and with thy olive yard. So, a lot of people have turned this into, you know, they'll, they'll let the land lay fallow for a year. Some land that they have. I know uh, hay farmers that will, they don't, that not many of them are very strict about it, but almost all of them will uh, plow up the ground and plant a cover crop that, and then they may, uh, they actually may harvest that cover crop, but then they'll start over again with another crop. But I, I know a place down in Texas where they were actually very strictly letting the land rest for the seventh year. And there, there is, there can be a value in that depending on the type of soil and, and the situation and the method of farming, etc., etc. But this is about so that the poor may eat. So how does the fact that you didn't plant any corn in this field on the seventh year so that the poor could eat? What are we talking about? Uh, and, you know, there's more to it than that. We won't go into all of it here. But uh, they go on in 12, six days thou shalt do thy work, and in the seventh day thou shalt rest, and thine ox and thy ass may rest, and the son of thy handmaid and the stranger may be refreshed. So there's something in this pattern. This is back to the Sabbath, mentioning the, the six days you work. And then the seventh day you rest. And of course, if I'm right about my witness that the Sabbath is about debt and not about simply taking the seventh day off of a week, it's about the working first instead of borrowing against tomorrow so that you can have a a vacation or whatever today, then there's more to this whole idea of the seventh year. And, of course, we'll see that when they talk about indentured servants. You could indenture somebody. Somebody could sell themselves as an employee. They'll say, I'll work for you for seven years. 
when my brothers and I came out here, we made an agreement that we would work together for seven years and uh, to try to establish a ranch here. Well, they're all gone. I'm still here. And, of course, they don't have a real ranch like big ranchers or anything, but we do have a little bit of livestock here. And uh, because I was following a different spirit, I wasn't, I wasn't, but the point is our agreement was for seven years. And at the end of the agreement, we dissolved the agreement and divided the assets and here we are, or here I am. But uh, at that same point, at the end of that seven years is when I began to start this writing. And it was in the seventh year that I began to see this transition of what I had been taught in St. Joseph's College and and all the churches I was in and started putting things together because those law books showed up on my doorstep and started realizing, and everybody should just know this, Moses is talking about law. So the Bible's about law. It mentions government 700 times. It mentions religion five times. Now, religion can be a part of government. And the nature of your religion can determine the kind of government you end up with. Because it's been well known that socialism is the religion you get when you have no religion, especially if it's pure religion. During one of the breaks, just on this show alone, I added to the statement concerning that pure republic in the tradition of the Libra Res Publica talked about by Tacitus. They practice pure religion. Pure religion, as we know from the New Testament, is how you take care of the needy, the widows and orphans and needy of your society, the poor of your society, unspotted by the world. And the word they use there in that statement, if you don't know your Greek, is one of four different words that they, actually five different words they can translate into world. But it means constitutional order and system of government. You're supposed to be taking care of the needy without the government. And this is what Moses is talking about. But if you're getting those those gifts from the government, you have to know that those gifts are given to you by government because they are the governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other. And Jesus said that was not to be that way with you. Now it says that in every single Bible and every single church, yet I hear pastors actually saying it's okay to go to the government to get benefits, to get gifts from the government even though they are the ones who are exercising authority one over the other. And Jesus said we weren't to do that. But the pastors today are saying that we can do that. Because they're just as blind as Jordan Peterson's symposium when it comes to looking at the things that you get by coveting your neighbor's goods. Through those men who go up by steps. So... You see how this is, I'm just overlapping this constantly. You're not keeping the seventh day if you're doing that. You're not even keeping the commandments if you're doing that. Number 13. And in all things that I have said unto you, be circumspect. And make no mention of the name of other gods. Neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. So, who are these other gods? 
<laughs> these other gods. Of course, I have links on the page where you can go to articles and find out who are these gods. Many Paul talks about them. The Old Testament talks about them. These gods are the ruling judges who decide good and evil, who decide who's going to give what, how much they're going to give, when they're going to give, how much you're going to get, because they're making the choices and not you. You need to repent of thinking that way and start thinking like Christ, which we will hopefully do when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom after another brief break. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, we finished off that the, the last uh, part of the section here of verse 13 where it talks about we're not even to mention these other gods. We're not to look to them. We're not to uh, depend upon them at all. And these gods are simply the ruling judges of these systems like Sodom had their gods, which, they, of course, they had... They might have had statues or symbols of their gods, but the, there was somebody running the system. Aaron was going to be the god of the golden statue because he was going to be the ruling judge of, you know, how the gold goes into the golden statue. When we, it's the reserve fund, like we say in all the Greek city states who had these golden statues, they refer to them as a reserve fund. That's, if you don't understand that in history, you're not going to understand why they were putting their gold in the golden statue. And there were going to be people that were in charge of that statue. It was simply a way of creating an external vault where you could tell if somebody was robbing the bank. You don't know where you, you have you looked in Fort Knox lately? You know, you don't know what's in there. And even if there is gold in there, you don't know who owns it unless you look at the books. Which is why we have people running around calling themselves open the books. And they're showing you that they've been robbing you for a long time. But the reason they've been robbing you for a long time is you were willing to rob your neighbor for a long time. You were willing to take away from your neighbor through the men who do go up by steps. Your ministry should not go up by steps. Up to the altars. And if you don't understand that the altars were systems of social welfare to take care of the needy of society, the poor of society, in a way to strengthen them, then you're missing the whole point of the gospel, the whole point of Exodus, the whole reason why Moses and Jesus were in agreement. Well, right after he talks about not mentioning the name of these other gods, depending upon these other gods, or looking to these other gods, or eating the bread at their table. He talks about the feasts. And he says in 14, Three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded thee in the time appointed of the month of Abid. For in it thou camest out from Egypt. And none shall appear before me empty. What's he talking about? Well, we know that leaven has to do with cruelty. So unleavened bread is bread that comes to you by way of no cruelty. And we explain this. You go back to, we have an article on leaven. And it's linked to on the page. 
And you can find out what he's saying. Get leaven out of the borders of your nation. He means get this cruelty. That's what John the Baptist was doing. He said, we're going to take care of the needy of our society. If all those people are baptized by me down by the Jordan River, we're going to take care of the needy of our society through faith, hope, and charity. We know the Pharisees were doing it through force, fear, and fealty. Because that's the system that Herod set up. They were using force. John the Baptist was using charity. And the same word for charity in the Greek is the same word we see Jesus using when he talks about love. So number 16. The feast of harvest, the first fruits of thy labor, which thou hast sown in the fields, and the feast of ingathering, which is in the end of the year, when thou hast gathered in thy labors out of the field. Three times in the year, all thy males shall appear before the Lord God. Now remember what it said in verse 15. Appear before me empty. They shall none appear before me empty. In other words, they're all bringing their gifts in. The month of a bid, that would be like April. So somewhere around April 15th, you should be giving into the house of God. To do what? To take care of the needy of society in a way that strengthens the poor. If you're giving to somebody else, or you have to give to somebody else, then that's your God. Have you made any agreements with them? Yeah, probably. And you have to keep those agreements. If you've made the agreements, you have to keep them. But if you change your thinking, if you start doing what Christ actually said, because Christ said, you know, if you owe the tax, pay the tax. But he says, start thinking differently. Start acting differently. Start gathering together and taking care of one another out of love, like John the Baptist. And eventually he got everybody who got his baptism kicked out of that system. So they didn't have to pay in anymore. But they were still going to have to have these feasts where they did not show up empty. And there's a reason why it's three times a year. But we'll go into that somewhere else. We talk about the feast. We have articles on it. And they're linked to on that page. 18. Thou shalt not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread. What does that mean? Bread of cruelty. Bread of forced offerings. Bread that is available because men who exercise authority force everybody to give up something of their sweat and toil and labor to provide you with free stuff. You're not the, that's not, that has nothing to do with God. That has to do with the gods of the world. Your, your religion, which is the way in which you take care of the widows and orphans, is evidently probably, based on observation, very spotted by the world. And the people who tell me, well, I don't take any benefits. Well, you are a benefit to nobody. If you're not taking care of one another the way Christ said, then you either, you don't have his religion, you may not have the religion of the world, but you don't have his religion. You're a foolish virgin. 18. Thou shalt not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread. 
Neither shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. In other words, you can't delay. You say, well, I, I didn't bring anything this time, uh, but I'll catch you next time. If you have any, let me know. No. That's not the way it works. Uh, we've, we've, I've seen that for years where people said, well, nobody said they had a need, so I didn't give anything. <laughs> and, and, of course, they want to turn their ministers into beggars. That's not the job of the minister. It's your job to step up and form that viable republic in the heart of the Roman Empire, which is what I'm quoting Gibbons talking about the early church that formed a viable republic in the heart of the Roman Empire because they started doing things the way Moses said to do them, through faith, hope, and charity, through free will offerings. 19, the first fruits of thy land thou shalt bring into the house of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not seethe a kid in his mother's milk. See the kid? That means boil a kid in its mother's milk. Now, people have made this a part of the food laws, and I've been working on a page called Milk and Meat at Preparing You, and there's a link to it on our page at Preparing You on Exodus uh, 23. And I'm sure I'm going to add more to it, but this has nothing to do with food laws. It has nothing to do with the cruelty to a she-goat or a she you uh, lamb, which some people say, although you shouldn't be cruel, and there is there is a symbolism in it, but it has to do with the way in which you create that system of social welfare, that social safety net in a free society, has to be only done not with legal charity, which ninety nine percent of the people in the world depend upon, but fervent charity. On the micro, not the macro, which is one of the reasons why they had the festival three times a year. Because it's not the macro, it's the micro. They, they're not depending upon a central treasury. They're depending upon a different system. And the number of people that have studied the Bible and don't get this is just shocking. But, uh, but, it was prophesied that that's the, what would happen. But anyway, so we just gave a little bit of a look at it. We have other articles on feasts and festivals. But let's get into the section of messengers before you. Because then he goes into a section where he talks about in verse 20. Behold, I sent an angel before thee to keep thee in the way. And to bring thee into a place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. So, many will interpret this angel or the word there in Hebrew as messenger is whoever it was that they were talking to in this pillar of fire at night and the pillar of smoke by day that uh, Moses actually entered into and talked to and and there's somebody in there that was a representative of God that was guiding them and protecting them as they went through the wilderness, escaped Egypt, etc. What that is, I don't know any more than you do. <laughs> uh, but uh, 
so there is those two verses. But then he goes on, but if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, that's God speaks, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto thine adversary. For mine angels shall go before thee and bring thee in unto the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and I will cut them off. I will cut them off. There's a particular order of words there. How did he cut off the Egyptians? God Did, did God kill the Egyptians? Did he smite them with bolts of lightning? Uh, no, they did something really stupid. They took their chariots and tried to cross the Red Sea. And uh, it, it came in and drowned them. So they literally committed suicide. Because they had judged it okay to go and kill Israelites, they themselves were killed. As they judged, so were they judged. They killed themselves. They put themselves to death. This is the way God actually works. There are times when Israel strays from that. And we've seen this where there's this phrase, put to death. And we're, I'm working on that page too. I've got the preliminary down. Something's wrong with the translation of those Hebrew words. They are not correct. It's part of that false witness. But we'll address that later. Now it says, their gods. Thou shalt not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works, but thou shalt utterly overthrow them, and quit, quite break down their images, their formats, their structures, their, their way of doing things. And you break it down by doing what God says. You don't have to go out there and actually break them. You didn't have to go out there and actually kill the Egyptians. What you have to do is seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and the overthrowing of these other systems will take place. I, Like I've said many times, everybody will eventually be free, but everybody will not survive freedom. If you want to survive freedom, although that should not be your goal, your goal is the righteousness of God. You have to be willing to lay down your life for the righteousness of God. If your goal is to save yourself, you're not coming in the name of Christ. Because Christ didn't come to save himself. He came to save others. So you have to do the same thing. Play all the mental gymnastics you want, but that's that's the, that's the my story and I'm sticking to it. So 25, and ye shall serve the Lord your God and... He shall bless thy bread and thy water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of thee. A lot of sickness today. More and more people. One of the people that we know got the jab, started having all kinds of neuropathy and difficulties and everything. They took a fall, broke a shoulder, broke a rib, and got a cat. They needed stitches too, I guess. Very little doubt where that all came from. But uh, God will heal you if you repent. Uh, he will take the sickness away. Now, how he will do that, I'm not going to. I don't have enough time. We're almost to the end of the show. <laughs> so, so let's go on to uh, 26. There shall nothing cast their young, nor be barren 
in thy land. The number of thy days I will fulfill. Again, I'm pointing to our time. Because this is a timeless message. There are many people that are having trouble now. As far as being barren. And when we did some of the other prophets. We talked about the wombs would become empty. And all these prophecies and everything. That is the goal of evil. Your goal has to be the righteousness of God. And I've shown you that it is not righteous to covet your neighbor's goods. I would love to show Jordan Peterson's crowd that. <laughs> but they can't even see it. They're, they're walking around the elephant in the room. But anyway, 27. I will send my fear before thee and will destroy, particular word there, destroy, all the people to whom thou shalt come, and I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee. What is he talking about? You know, it talks about in Hebrews eleven seventeen by faith, Noah being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So, what is that all about? Even Peter mentions Noah twice in, in 1 Peter 3.20 and 2 Peter 2.5. And he also, in the same verses, he mentions righteousness. We need to be seeking the righteousness of God. That is, that is the solution. And... Uh, I, I won't explain it here, maybe in the afternoon show, or maybe we'll get time back before we get to the end. But I, he says, I will send my fear before thee, and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come. And I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee. You're not going to do it yourself. You're not even Gideon's 300. But if you seek the kingdom of God in his righteousness, it will be done un. For you, the fear of God will go out ahead of you. And all I could do is bear witness to that, but I've seen it myself. So you just have to seek to understand it. And the more you seek the righteousness of God, the more you will understand how it works. 28. And I will send hornets before thee, which shall... Drive out the Hivite and the Canaanite and the Hittite from before thee. I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. By little and little I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. A lot of people left with Israel when they left Egypt. But uh, they uh, they were falling away because this is a republic. You had to take back your responsibilities, and some people were saying, "I mean, you had your gold in your pocket, you had your silver in your pocket, you could get together." You know, Dathan kind of created a, a, a you know a rival group, but I'm sure there were other rival groups that you just woke up and you said, "Where'd Steve go?" <laughs> Steve's gone. Steve and his whole family's gone. 
Where, where'd they go? They just went somewhere else. There was a lot of people fall. That certainly happened in the time of Christ. It had to have happened in the time of Moses. But they were going to need more people who were following the way. And that's what you need to do. Is start following the way. And I'm just kind of telling you, and that's what we're trying to show you, what that way looks like. And it doesn't look like what you've been doing. And I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea, even unto the Sea of the Philistines, and from the desert unto the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and thou shalt drive them out before thee. And that's actually what happened. I have a whole article there, and if you, if you're on that page, the peaceful invasion of Canaan. Evidence is, is that most of Canaan was not taken by people coming in and slaughtering those Hivites and Canaanites and all those other people. A great many of them joined the Israelites. Probably not the majority. Others tried to fight them and drive them out. Big mistake. While I don't believe that we should be putting people to death, which I'll explain at another time, I believe that there is a right to self-defense. But the greatest defense is the fear of the Lord. If you have the respect of the Lord and His fear goes out ahead of you, your enemies will flee before you. Number 32. Thou shalt make no covenants with them nor with their gods. This is all, this is where this started up there farther above, above the feast. Not making these covenants with their ruling judges. Just put the word ruling judges there. Their Elohim, ruling judges, Theos, ruling judges, their superior courts, their supreme courts, their men who go up by steps. Don't make covenants with them to get benefits, especially at the expense of your neighbor. Don't be seeking their dainties. Gather together and create the table of the Lord, the Corbin of Christ. Number 33. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. For if thou serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. And of course, Paul talks about that. David talks about that. Their table of welfare... Their tables are a snare and a trap. Their one purse runs towards evil. The dainties, you should not have an appetite for their dainties, but you should have an appetite for the love of Christ who came to give his life for others. And that's why you gather together to lay down your life so that you may pick it up more abundantly. And so anyway, we got to 23 at times. I thought it was going to be impossible. But uh, we did. And there is uh, a lot of information in the side panel. I do have, uh, you know, uh, making covenants, making constitution, contracts, covenants, and constitutions. What does the Bible say about making a constitution? Is the... Constitution of the United States or of Australia or any of these constitutions in conformance to biblical commands concerning making a constitution. Because there are biblical commands on what to do if you want to have men who can exercise authority one over you. You can certainly do that. You have a right to do that. It may lead to bad things. If you don't understand, you may want to write certain things down in your constitution to protect And the Bible tells you what those are, and we show you on that page 
at Exodus 23. They have links to not my constitution and the five basic things you want to include in that constitution. Almost none of which are in the U.S. Constitution, which I would have to have a, uh, a fascinating discover a, a conversation with uh, the people that, that are promoting it at Jordan Peterson's symposium. But anyway, all that's in the side panel. We'll put more in. Join the network at preparingyou.com uh, or at hisholychurch.org. All our books are online for free. All these articles are free. All the audios are for free. But there aren't, they aren't really for free. There, there's a hidden cost. And the hidden cost is you may have to set down your delusions. You may have to let go of the false witness information you receive from all these other people. And start realizing that the way of righteousness is not the way that generations have been going in America and Australia and Canada and England and and Europe and South America and all these countries. They've been going the wrong way. And there is a concerted push in the media and in the powers that control the media to get more and more people to go the way of unrighteousness, the way of the mammon of unrighteousness, the way of the wages of unrighteousness. And they've captured many of your children's and their minds. But uh, that's because the push is there because time is short. And you need to repent and turn around and go the other way. And... And that's what we're trying to show you here. So the next chapter, of course, is 24, and it gets into a whole different section. But we'll have to deal with that next time on Keys to the Kingdom. Until then, peace on your house, and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.